From 11FS, this is InsurTech Insider News. Today we bring you London-based InsurTech Human secures us $10.1 million in funding to enable real-time fleet insurance. Egypt InsurTech startup Amenly closes $2.3 million seed round. And finally, Aviva reveals the quirkiest insurance claims in its 325-year history. It could be a long show, folks. All that and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsurTech Insider episode 103. I'm Nigel Walsh. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and InsurTech from the past few weeks. Joining me as always is Benjamin Enser, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing today, Benjamin? I'm really well, thank you, Nigel. How are you? I'm all right. I'm busier than a busy thing. It's hard to believe it's heading fast into Christmas, but I'm looking forward to it and um, looking forward to the days getting lighter as well. Don't even get me to that point. It's 65 days to that point. Anyway, we are also accompanied by some amazing guests. First up, we have Susan Holiday, Senior Advisor at IFC. How are you doing today, Susan? Uh, great. Thank you. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C. It's a nice sunny day. Would you know, Washington, D.C. is one of the only places I've not been to so far in the States that's on my absolute bucket list. So I'll be giving you some tips and tricks over the next few weeks. Absolutely. No, let me know. Can you tell us a little, a little bit more about you and your background and what IFC is? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So um, I've spent more than 30 years in the insurance industry. Um, currently, one of my roles is I'm a senior advisor to the IFC, and the IFC stands for International Finance Corporation. It's the private sector arm of the World Bank. Um, focused on uh, emerging markets. And amongst other things, I do some work for them um, on fintech um, and on things focused on um, women and um, insurance for SMEs. And then outside of that, I do some board and advisory work um, related to the insurance industry and the insure tech industry. Fantastic. Sounds like we need a longer podcast, <laughs> I think. We are also joined by Mark Musson, founder of Human. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm almost peaking, thanks, Nigel. It's uh, I'm in London. Bit of a, when I say breeze, I mean like a 60-knot wind blowing outside, but um, we're all good. Um, manage, the building's still standing, and, and it's great to be here. So no quirky claims coming from you is what you're saying? Oh, we, I've got some really interesting ones, actually. We can talk about that later. <laughs> we, we always hope for zero claims, but that's not reality, is it? Not, not at all. I look forward to it. I generally look forward to it. So uh, I will say, in honour of Sarah, I hope she's still listening, it was a freakishly warm 18 degrees at 6 o'clock this morning. I just don't understand what's going on with the British weather. But there we are. Let's get started with the show. So first up, London-based insurer Human secures £10.1 million in funding to enable real-time fleet insurance. The funding was led by BXR Group and Shell Ventures, as well as Hambro Perks, Leaders in Fund and Woodside Holdings. Human aims to further develop its unique insurance data capabilities and expand the commercial functions of the business, as well as expanding across Europe next year. Founded in 2018, Human set out to disrupt traditional motor and fleet insurance. Consolidating the traditionally separate categories of fleet insurance and risk management, it has built a solution that provides fleets with unparalleled transparency. I feel we are overly qualified to pass to you, Mark, on this one today. <laughs> Can you tell us more about it and uh, how you've got to this spot? Yeah, it's it's been it's been an interesting four years. We, we actually started out with nothing to do with insurance, and um, because I'm kind of unemployable in the corporate environment, but spent a lot of many years building trading systems, sort of post-trade settlement, um, custody, and fund administration where you're dealing with massively complex data problems and uh, 
building systems that can make sense of all of that and then make decisions off the basis of the sense it's making. And um, as a, I've been here in London for 12 years and it was time to find a way to be gainfully employed by myself again rather than someone else. And so the original sort of plan was to, was to find an area with loads and loads of data, very interesting problems to solve and not many solutions present at that point in time. And I, I got really enamored with the whole autonomous vehicle environment and it sort of really captured my imagination and it's it struck me as being something that's interesting and potentially solves a lot of problems but also potentially has a long way to go so the kind of the initial exploration was well can i you know build a platform that holds a real-time copy of of vehicles and then can we use that data to do something and that's something the original idea was, well, we can build training data sets for the algorithm developers for those autonomous vehicle builders. So the way the platform's built is to have this very, very, very fine-grained contextualized view in order to generate enough interesting events to be able to train machine learning algorithms in, in that sort of environment. But the second problem to solve was, well, how do you get, and at that stage, McKinsey, uh, I think it was McKinsey, let's just call it McKinsey, and had out this number of a billion miles of driving data required before you could reach level five autonomy. And obviously it's, you know, not a real number because it doesn't really come from any knowledge of anything, but it, that also captured our imagination. We said, well, well, if, if you need a billion, billion miles, how are you going to get them? And um, through a very, various sort of, I guess that the random walk around figuring this out, we, we started working with um, with a company that has, about 300 Toyota Priuses at leases to Uber drivers on a weekly basis. And they do 60,000 miles per vehicle. And boom, there you go, that was the solution. So we struck a deal with that fleet to, to collect all of the data. And the only thing we had to do was solve the insurance problem, which was seemed like a fairly easy thing to do at the time. <laughs> but- um, Well, just, just, just to find the insurance problem, what do you mean by the insurance problem? Well, it's a commercial, this is the thing, right? So it's, it's a commercial fleet policy. And um, the average sort of tenure of a driver is about a month max. So they don't really care if there's a dent in the bumper and things like that. The mileage is 60,000, as I said, per vehicle, super high. They are taxis and they drive around London. So it's probably the most uninsurable proposition ever you've you've been to to um, certain other cities in europe right or yeah. in america right <laughs> yeah i i grew up in africa you know um <laughs> it seemed pretty tame to me at the time but apparently it's not so there you go yeah and and so so unpicking the it seemed to me oh well this is really easy and then it turned out to be really difficult and to to redux the whole thing we, we ended up looking at um things from a slightly different viewpoint and understanding look we have every single moment of of every single vehicle and um, underneath because of what we wanted to do we built a at that stage a fairly rudimentary but a pretty decent geospatial risk model underneath it as well and things just kind of grew from there and and we ended up saying we initially me but then as we built the team slowly saying well I understand how um, you know a trade works. You have some events floating around. There are algorithms that notice changes. Uh, these changes can be attributed to a change in some form of state. In this instance, exposure, and that has a different price. That seemed pretty logical and easy to me to, to figure this out. So we built that, and then started speaking to 
you know, the large composite saying, look at this amazing thing we've built. You really need this. You can build products on top of it. And the feedback we got from the market was it's amazing. Um, I have no idea how I would use it. And every time we had that sort of conversation, started building out an example of, well, maybe it's a bit like this. And after a year of doing that, ended up going, do you know what? We've built the insurance company on top of the data platform. So that's what we may as well be. And so last year was the culmination of going through our FCA regulation process, finding insurance capacity, building the product out for real and launching it. So in a very kind of convoluted way, that's how we arrived at. We didn't set out to solve the fleet insurance problem, but we found an interesting way to do it. It's a fascinating view. And actually, the journey you've just taken this on from solving problem to getting regulated yourself is very similar to what we've seen in other insurtechs, but actually fintechs yeah. before us, where the fintechs got yeah. tired of dealing with some of the traditional incumbents that were moving too slow and so we can go quicker yeah. and be more agile and and, and elsewhere. Yeah. There's two things that, I, that you've said that I'm really intrigued by. Number one is raising money during a pandemic. I'd be keen to get your experience mm. Uh, and mm. share that how that was different or how that would be perceived differently, harder, easier, or or just yeah. maybe maybe just different, uh, given what we've gone through the last two years. And number two, of course, is you know you talk about taking guesswork out of the equation here and the use of AI. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. So t- tell yeah. us more about the process of raising money during a pandemic. I mean, it's a ver- you have to be very intentional about it. Um, and by that, you just need to treat it as as uh, kind of as as a project and and really dig into it and kind of the way you develop products and segment. Be very careful about segmenting out all of the investors. Build a decent CRM before you reach out to anyone. Understand who's writing checks, who isn't writing checks, what stage their funds at, um, how how deployed are they? Do they have uh, firepower at that stage to deploy? Are they writing into the sector? At what stage are they, and at what stage are you? Like, don't approach a Series A fund at seed, and don't get seed funds to write anything into your Series A, and there's the reasons for that. But yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I've been, look, it's it's not my first sort of company at all. When I was in South Africa, I started and uh, built and sold five companies prior. A very different environment, uh, much more entrepreneurial, much looser. So it's much more formal in London. But, um, and I learned a lot during that process to, down to the point of you really are segmenting everyone down to the ones you really want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's selling. And then once, and then to, to sort of the flip side of coming out of that is once you've done the job really well once and, um, with the, I think, um, you know, for this last round, we've just closed now. Um, literally, we didn't take outside money. We, we got offers from outside money and we didn't take it. We stuck with our existing investors um, with one new fund from Hambro's. Um, you can treat them pretty much as a new investor, but they've sort of been watching from the sidelines. So they do have the inside information. And there, the, 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 I guess the, um, the lesson there is, you know, be clear about your plan, execute your plan, if anything changes, and, and it is always going to change when you're doing these things, make sure everyone's 100% informed and, and never, ever, ever let them have any surprises, good news or bad news, always share it. No surprises. And that way people back you and support you, you know, and that, that's the key thing. Interesting. Really interesting. Susan, you're, you're straight back from the wonderful ITC that I was frustrated to miss out on, and it sounded like a great event. And actually, I believe you were doing a number of panels, one on AI and auto. Is this something that you saw lots of on in Vegas a few weeks back? 
Yeah, so I, I should get some kind of award because I've been at ITC every single year, um, either in person or last year uh, or last year virtually, and on panels every year except the first one. Um, ye- it always bothers me a bit about ITC when you see loads and loads of kind of stands of companies in that exhibition hall that look like they're doing nearly the nearly the same thing, right? Um, so yes, um, a lot of focus, um, a lot of focus on AI in general, and quite a lot of focus on claims, which is probably a good thing because process still needs to be improved. Um, and what I would say is that some of the companies or offerings um, are kind of becoming more mature. It's not just kind of bullshit, but it bluntly, um, they're actually kind of like scaling and really being um, really being implemented. So I was quite impressed. I sat on a panel with um, someone from Google and um, someone from um, Solera, which is a software company that works with the insurance industry and the automotive industry. I'm on their advisory board. And, um, you know, there are some um, there are some good things going on. So I think it's it's starting to reach kind of proper proper deployment, not just kind of at scale, right? Not just talking about it, um, which is a good thing. And there are some interesting ancillary, just to throw this one, because I really like it, interesting ancillary things. Um, for example, um, they can help with um, finding parts um, that can be reused. If you have a very new vehicle that's maybe been involved in an accident or something, um, the whole kind of green parts thing. And I think that's a kind of like nice add-on that could be attractive to um, the automotive sector, to insurers, but actually to to consumers um, as well, and can be also relevant to the fleets that we, we heard about earlier. It really is fascinating. The other thing that I've seen over the years, and, and Benjamin, you may see the same, is the shift almost from personal auto to commercial auto has been really interesting, given this, I think the complexity is probably similar or on par, but actually the, the, the management of said complexity is probably easier with a fleet or commercial fleet than it is individual basis. So Benjamin, I don't know if you've seen much in that space. I know the competition here, Mark, to, to your world is actually quite intensive as well. So I don't, know, I don't know who wants to go first on that quickly. Well, I'll just touch on it quickly. I, I, I agree, actually. I think it's a really, really interesting area because I think the fleet owners have a real incentive to try and drive down their insurance costs. And of course, this isn't a zero-sum game, right? This is a positive-sum game because if you can get drivers to drive more carefully, you reduce risk and you reduce accidents, you reduce claims, and the insurance costs go down, or you know, the whole costs go down for everyone. So I think the the impact of InsurTech on fleet insurance is huge because there are fleets all around that are significantly driving down their costs by teaching drivers who are employees to drive more carefully. And I was very interested, Mark, to see some of the statistics coming out of Human about how you've managed to help customers drive down their claims costs. So I think it's a fascinating area. And Nigel, I think you're right. I think it's tough. Um, And and, um, when you start unpacking it, you're dealing with employees at the end of the chain. You know, that's the point of exposure. Your point of exposure is all of these vehicles driving around on the road. And um, within the fleet themselves, I mean, it's so varied. It's not a homogeneous customer. You know, um, you have from the smaller ones who have zero risk management, and possibly the same person who's the owner, the risk manager, the insurance buyer, etc., through to bigger ones where the person buying the insurance is generally your FD, and there is some form of risk manager who, and their interests are vaguely aligned, but but not. And then the challenge always is that you're trying to you're trying to manage the behaviour um, of an individual driver. But here's the really curious thing: 
So the way our stack works is it's we own the IP top to bottom, side to side, end to end. We don't rely on telematic service providers for scoring or anything. So all of the behavioral scoring, all of the event detection, all of the geospatial risk is our own IP. And so therefore our pricing model, we can price on every single one of one of those factors, rating factors, and we can do it reliably regardless of the source of the data because it's normalized and goes through our algorithms. We're not trying to do 20 different things. So is a score of five, you know, from that system, the same as a score of three from that, none of that. And in reality, what we, um, when it comes down to it, when we look at our pricing model, the actual driving behavior drives around about 20% of the actual rating factor. So that's one thing, uh, and that's interesting, and that's science, not opinion. Um, most of it's about the geospatial risk model that we've built, um, the real-time changes in that environment, um, and then um, we also work on, well, I, without saying too much, it isn't sort of, we don't do, we don't do sort of threshold-based event detection and say, oh, the, you know, harsh breaking is bad. Uh, and typically, that's what you'll hear in this environment is if you can bring down harsh breaking, you can save X amount of money. And this is this is not true. Um, and then also, because they're commercial fleets, you can't say, well, um, you know, if you don't drive at this time of day um, or you take a different route, then, then it'll be cheaper for you. All we're doing is saying, this is the cost. And our pricing model will work out um, for each trip we we have a component which has you know, a fairly well understood principle of a swing on it, which is a, a loading or a discount based on that exposure. You're leaving us all intrigued here and not to sound like an advert for human, but you're, but what you've basically said is less guesswork, uh, which is fantastic. So look, w congratulations again on the raise. It's outstanding, specifically in this environment and in a super interesting area that I can only think is going to get more and more exciting as we see more move from personal to fleet going forward. Definitely. So congrats. <laughs> Thank Benjamin, you. with that, it's over to you. Thank you. So our next story is um, about Egyptian insurtech startup Amenly, which has closed a $2.3 million seed round. This story was reported in Tech in Africa, TechCrunch, and various other media. So YC-backed startup Amenly has attracted $2.3 million uh, in seed insurance to provide insurance services to Egyptians. The company was founded by Omar Ezeldin, Shady El Tofa, and Adham Nauman, and I apologize if I've mispronounced those, which I'm sure I have. Um, the untapped insurance market in Egypt is valued at something like $2 billion, uh, and mainly is targeting Egypt's 50 million adults in the middle income pool who are not well insured today. Um, before starting this startup, the founders had founded a previous fintech called Paymob. Um, so, Susan, I'd like to come to you first on this one. We're, we're really starting to see a little bit of a boom in insurtech in Africa. Um, what do you think are the things that are driving that? What's what's driving these, these startups and investment in these businesses? So I think it's interesting because you do actually see some different types of founders um, in Africa. And um, much to my delight, I, I see more women, actually, um, which, is a, which is a great thing. Um, so I think actually it ties a little bit to something Mark said earlier about kind of like incumbents being kind of slow to embrace new things and the kind of not invented here syndrome. And, um, you know, the challenge clearly in Africa is that 
people don't know about insurance, don't don't kind of understand it, don't really necessarily see the value. But the flip side of that is there's kind of like a blank sheet of paper. And also everyone goes on about leapfrogging and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, M-Pesa is a hell of a lot better than the banking that we have, certainly in the US. Well, I moved here from London um, more than just more than five years ago, and I cannot believe that financial services is so is so old fashioned. So, um, you know, you do have the chance to go to not just kind of digital first, but digital only. Right. And and all this um, and all this type of thing. And the markets are attractive because of the huge protection gap. And like the, there are countries like Egypt that have huge populations. Um, the, pr- the problem is, as I mentioned before, first of all, kind of lack of familiarity um, with even the concept of insurance. It's not like in, um, you know, in Western Europe or the US where, you know, you, you buy a car or you rent a flat or whatever, and you kind of have to have insurance um, wh- whether, you, whether you like it or not. And um, the other thing is when we're talking about partnering with incumbents, this is a bit of a generalization that's slightly unfair, but on the whole, believe it or not, their systems are kind of like even worse than the ones in Europe. So a lot of them literally, I mean, I went to see a company once um, in Africa where the the server was um, kind of like at the company's office, but it was like next to the parking (laughs) garage. And um, they they were trying to like market insurance on Facebook. And I'm like, well, that doesn't work anyway. But, um, you know, we feel that you have some more basic things to fix because we think your server might like get blown up. Um, and, um, you know, they were sending backups to the bank every week in armored vans, which really, really got hijacked and all this kind of stuff. So it's quite tricky sometimes to kind of find partners and it's really tricky to get to scale. There's loads and loads of really cool ideas in Africa, but not many of them, partly because they're, they're newer in terms of when they were founded than, than the ones we're seeing in US and Europe, but not many of them have really got to scale. And then just the final thing what is kind of like cheap and mass market for us is not cheap or mass market um, in most of those countries. So I'm actually pleased um, that you mentioned that they're focusing on quote unquote middle income because everyone was chasing this kind of trendy bottom of the pyramid, blah, blah, blah. And um, I I just don't think that's a a viable business model unless you're really relying on kind of like donor funding. So th- there's a few things going on, kind of positive um, positive and negative, but I-, I have seen quite a few interesting startups over the last few years coming out of Africa. Definitely. I thought one of the really interesting thing- things about this story is that part- one of their objectives is to sort of build partnerships with consumers so that consumers can get instant quotations and access to lots of different policies. So not only is this about you know, getting access to insurance at all, but it's also about encouraging sort of more comparisons and so on. Nigel, I know you've sort of had a one of the previous episodes of InsureTech Insider, you were talking about InsureTech in Africa and so on. Do you do you agree with Susan's perspective on some of the challenges of, of making InsureTech successful in the continent? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I was delighted to learn from Lambie and others that we had on um, one of the previous shows about the Cadogan economy and the small side of things. I think the sheer scale and size of the opportunity is huge. And I agree, we've got we've got to start moving up from the entry level, or we called it nano insurance last time, all the way up into this middle income bracket. But you 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 mentioned a point that's true in every single facet of society, and that's education. How do we educate you on what you need, what you should have, and what's nice to have? And I'm not sure there's a single 
stone unturned across the globe where we are constantly on this battle to help people understand if they have some money, what they should do, what's nice to have and what they must have. And getting that is is just absolutely critical, I think, uh, wherever we go. And, and and enabling that then is the next challenge. But we, yeah, we learned, we learned last time from, from Lamy and others about how they're actually making this come true. I agree about education. One of the challenges I think, though, is, and I'm kind of biting the hand that's fed me for over 30 years here, but insurance tends to come from, you know, we have this great product and if you don't buy it, you're an idiot, right? And I would make two comments. One is some of the products are great, but some are not that great because they were invented 100 or 50 years ago when society was very different um, from what it is now. And the assumption that kind of, you know, if you don't buy it, you're wrong is it may not, the person may be making a perfectly rational decision. So I do think that we need to look at the kind of overall risks. And I've done some work on this, particularly for women and SMEs in some emerging markets that they're facing. And as you mentioned, Nigel, what are the various tools that you can deploy to kind of like manage and mitigate those those risks? And quote unquote, insurance is, is one of those, but there are there are others as well. But unless the offering is actually dealing with the real risks that people are facing, then it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And it's it's not going to scale. And as I say, a lot of the things I think were kind of um, invented a long time ago or focused on d- very different family and societal situations um, and that they're not really helping. So I'm glad to see some of these startups are kind of um, focusing on yeah different types of different types of products and kind of um, you know, almost like a bundled approach of what we would call insurance with with other things as well. I'm conscious that we've got three British people talking about Africa with a with a proper African on the call. Mark, <laughs> uh, as I think, I, I believe you were born in South Africa. Have you, obviously there are big challenges in distributing uh, insurance across Africa. Have you seen interesting approaches in in the market that you, or in African markets that you want to share? I think it depends on, on where. I mean, where I'm from, South Africa is, is a very sophisticated market and actually from an insurance perspective, also very sophisticated market. But um, I, yeah, I think, um, well, there are a couple, couple of things. So one's sort of Africa related, one is in some while back in 2009, I did a year's worth of work with the African Development Bank, working on some of their challenges. And, and what was really interesting to me was that measurement of impact. And I think you, you kind of have to think about it in those terms. And um, I was helping them with, amongst other things, getting the data and the analytics together to figure out what impact looked like for, for, for the African Development Bank. And it's, it's a really, I think it's a good sort of way to frame the problem because what ADB does, um, I'm sure Susan, you'll be familiar, you know, particularly given your, your current, um, I guess, involvement, um, is that either through grant funding or project funding um, funds, development initiatives throughout Africa, and they're very driven towards the Millennium Development Goals. And, and a big chunk of these are, you know, how do you demonstrate and to how do you align to one or more of Millennium Development Goals? And the great example, um, and actually the person I worked with there was, is um, a most amazing person called Ellen Gottstein, and she came from the World Bank at that stage. And um, she redid the entire analytics framework. and. At, the, at that stage, they were kind of going, well, the cost per kilometer of roads, for example, things like that. Those are the KPIs that they were measuring from an impact perspective. And she put in place a program um, to, the good example was, if you're building a school in a community, um, then what they wanted to do was rather than, well, it cost, you know, uh, 50p per brick or whatever, was 
do a long-term study of following everyone that in the community that went through that school and what happened to them afterwards in terms of improvement of of their lives you know did they end up in a university somewhere etc cetera, etc cetera. and to cut a to cut a short story very long which is what i'm doing right now is you can't actually take as you said you know um the three or four westernized uh, three three british and one sort of super westernized person and um, understand uh, how how you're making a difference now in the african context actually there's self insurance and and collectives and and that is that is how people protect themselves uh, in reality um and generally they don't need help from companies to monetize that process and that's actually an interesting thought to think about in south africa there are collective savings initiatives called stockfells and what happens with those is uh, people pool their money and then someone gets a loan and then when they've paid that back the next person can take that loan and uh, and do something with it so there's that community pressure everyone lives in the same area everyone's making sure no one's going to default on the loan so there's almost zero default from very poor people zero default etc and I, these these sorts of structures were the inspiration for grameen bank i'm not sure if you're familiar with with that in that whole sort of microfinance environment and the products that that come out of that or they don't look like anything that we could imagine and I, i think that would be my take and i think also to touch on something you know susan said is is impesa and i know the guys that um, built the systems that did that it, there is this leapfrogging thing but it's not what you think um because of the lack of infrastructure so there is no banking infrastructure but there's huge mobile phone penetration and uh, no one has a bank account back in you know the 2000 and let's say the millennium digital wallets were created which are operated via sms and effectively that's where mpesa started so that it's 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 not an environment you really do need to be on the ground you need to have the cultural context and you need to understand what the need is before you can go and imagine solutions and so therefore typically what i would say is you never see those solutions coming out of london or anywhere like that if you know if i i the product that i've built doesn't translate into um the south african environment uh, there's a huge need for fleet insurance but the product i've built doesn't translate for example but i know that so it's not a market that we're going to go and tackle i don't know what the answer is but that's my view i think it's great that we're seeing you know african insurtechs getting funding to grow uh, the insurance market in the, all the various different diverse african countries and I'm, i'm acutely conscious that africa is a vast and diverse continent and um However, if you want to dive more into the topic, our last episode covered all things cross-African uh, insurtech with some amazing guests from Lamy and Resolution Insurance Kenya. So don't forget to check that one out. For now, we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back very soon. Introducing the Truly Digital Manifesto. If you're not truly digital already, well, you're missing out on a massive opportunity. Faster processes, more customer value, and higher revenues. It's not the future. It's already happening. So how do you measure up? Head over to trulydigital.elevenfs.com to see what it really means to be truly digital. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So next up we have a firm favorite of ours German insurtech startup Getsafe adds 63 million dollars to its series B. This from TechCrunch. Uh, Getsafe has extended its series B round that it previously announced in December 2020, so only a few months later. In addition to its original series B of 30 million, the company's adding a further 63 million in fresh capital. 
Overall, GetSafe has raised 93 million Series B round. That's a huge number now. And actually, I'm delighted to see these sorts of numbers in comparison to some of our friends across the pond in North America. Investors in today's funding round include unnamed family offices, as well as Early Bird and Abacon Capital. Some of the company's existing investors, such as Commerce Ventures and Swiss Re, are also investing in the company once again. The service is now active in two markets, Germany as well as in the UK. And while GetSafe has more customers in its home market, the company's metrics are going up and up. GetSafe currently has around 225,000 customers in Germany and 25,000 customers here in London. Where do we start on this one, folks? It's great to see, I guess, am I allowed to call it a double dip or going back again for extra funding? Mark, having just raised money, why would you go back and get money again so soon after the first raise? Is that, is that normal in this instance? Yeah, I think, I mean, well, oh, yes, I think absolutely it's normal. Um, I, it depends. And I think there, there are a couple of things driving it. There's, there's a lot of capital looking for homes at this stage. And um, some of it's halo effect, um, success begets success. I think that, um, you know, they're, they're, it depends on plans. I have no idea what they're planning to do with the capital. Um, we're looking to put out a note right now. We have um, a plan to extend this round we've just raised. For example, we have a particular, it's all gonna be invested in growth. Um, can't really say how yet, but it, it depends. It's a, it's a good time to, to be raising money right now. Um, if you have credible, strong plans, then the capital's available. I do think in a way that there's a lot of pressure to take more money and we had to resist this in our last round is almost 100% oversubscribed. And the challenge that if it's a price round is you end up you know, doing a massive amount of dilution. So often the pattern that I'm seeing is that after the round, there's a lot of money raised on a CLN, which is just basically a discount to the next round, um, which means that you're not really managing that dilution. And so you can take the extra capital. So from our perspective, our, the round that we've just raised now, we we capped it off and, and, and we took half of the amount of money that was available because of the valuation at the stage. Um, we, you know, we're still developing. And so therefore the dilution would have been excessive to take more money. And that was as much as we had plans to spend uh, at that point in time. We further developed those plans. Um, and now there's the opportunity to take fresh capital, which is non-dilutive uh, combination of venture debt as well as um, convertible loan notes. So that would generally be the scenario. I, I'd speak totally out of turn. That's I'm just so that's our scenario right now. And I think you'll find that that's generally representative of, of why fresh capital would be coming into a company. Um, I'm sure they've got great plans to spend that on growth and people are really expensive and you need a lot of them. Mm, I, th I think you've touched on a few things there. I I'm fascinated by your comment around there being, I don't want to say an abundance of cash out there, but it does feel right now that quarter on quarter, we keep hitting new records for funds invested in insurtech again at later stages. So this is almost emblematic of that in the first instance, but actually the fact that there's more money out there and a desire to do things is fascinating. So I'm I'm pleased and encouraged to see that. I think Benjamin mentioned earlier about um, the maturity of some of these pieces uh, or the maturity of the market as well, which is fascinating. I, I equate it to saying we're at sort of uh, three years ago's FinTech stage now with InsureTech, really. The tech applied solutions to an intractable problem are, are, are clear. The theses are not relatively clear and, and we're just fast following FinTech, I would say. So if, if, you, if you had to say what's going to happen next, just 
look at what happened to fintech over the last few years maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll go faster and learn by their mistakes as well i'm not saying they made any mistakes but maybe we'll learn by mistakes as well talking about fintech a good segue is one of the things that get safe believes is that they the best way to sell insurance is through a direct relationship with its end customers now susan you mentioned the maturity of the market in the us where you are right now and obviously knowing the uk market too um, the mobile app today acts as a key part of the company's product offering as you can buy new insurance products, manage existing contracts and so much more. Do you agree with that approach? Is that applicable in all markets? I know they're only Germany and UK today. Can you see the same working in North America as a, a route to engaging customers app only? I think it depends on the segment. For us, it's very much not a thing because because we are commercial. But in, in personal lines, yeah, sorry, Susan, over to you. No, no, no problem, because you're B2B. So I think, um, so it depends on the line, but more it depends on the customer. So a uh, source of sadness and disappointment to me is that um, it used to, uh, many companies still have agents for personal lines in the US, which for me makes absolutely no sense, and I do not want to talk to them. Um, and I, I, I had to once, and I did explain that, you know, I was an MD at Swiss Re, and then the conversation became pretty short, which was a good outcome for both parties. So I think the answer is yes, because um, when you talk about kind of next generation or whatever, right, people are doing everything on their on their mobile phones. And also, to be honest, calling up agents and stuff is a pain in the neck, right, because they can't work 24 hours a day and all the rest of it. Um, but there is a bit like we talked about the incumbent systems earlier on in Africa. There is an existing infrastructure and quite frankly i think the us insurers should be much more radical at looking at their business models that they keep trying to justify why agents are a good idea and i think they're not ironically in africa i think a different model of agents actually is valid because people don't know how to kind of do everything on their own, necessarily on their mobile phone. They need kind of help setting it up initially and how to get the whole thing to work and all the rest of it. So it's kind of funny that we have all these agents where we don't need them. And you, I think the sort of what I would call the digitally enabled agent who can help people to get set up. I help people who only have one phone in their entire family for six people or whatever. It is actually a, a good model in some of the developing countries. It, it's an amazing segue, almost like you've read the notes, but it's an amazing segue to one of their, or their primary market, I guess, in Germany. If you, if you compare them to WeFox, who actually partners with 700 agents and 5,000 associate brokers, who they distribute WeFox products to their own customers. So. Benjamin, one for you, is it actually a regional thing to Susan's point that you see here? Because I'm, you know, now that I'm leaning heavily into the North American market, I'm semi with Susan here going, I don't understand why these folks are here. And maybe to, to Mark's point, we're a few years behind fintech, but maybe the geographies are in different ways. And is there, again, back to the not liking the word leapfrog, but is there a way to skip some of this and go, actually, Agents absolutely have their place for certain things where we need to educate, understand, or give you confidence. But if it's a straightforward commodity product, we should be able to do it all digitally. Completely. 
consumers are very habitual, right? So people are used to buying insurance in particular ways in particular countries, and they continue to do those things until they stumble across a better way of doing it. Uh, obviously, younger consumers are more open to change because they haven't formed those habits. So you do have this sort of history of agent-based distribution in the United States and in some European markets like Italy and, and to some extent in Germany. What I think is really interesting about, actually, I see a lot in common between um, WeFox and GetSafe. What's really interesting is, can you use the app to engage customers, right? Can you use the borrowed relevance of the things that customers actually really care about, their cars, their houses, their wealth, their health? Can you use that to create that engagement that then gives you a better relationship and indeed a better understanding of that customer's risk? So actually, whether you're a broker as a business model or an underwriter, having that direct relationship with the customer and the data is super, super interesting. I think the advantage your WeFox has is, as a broker, they can bring in more underwriters and probably price better and give each individual customer a better choice of policies than if you just un if you're just an underwriter. So actually, I think the WeFox strategy is probably going to be more successful in the long term because you can give customers more choice in developed markets like Germany or the United States. But I think the key thing is that customer engagement that you get from having the app. Because if you don't do that, the danger is Google or someone else, Ping An, comes in and takes stands between you and your customers. I'm not saying a word to that. I was almost bait then, Benjamin. I'm not saying a word to any of those things. <laughs> the, um, but if we go full circle, and actually maybe what you're saying is, you heard it here first, are you saying WeFox and GetSafe should be combined as one to go after things in a better way in an end-to-end -end fashion? And if we go full circle... Um, one of the things GetSafe plans to do with its funding is finally get its own insurance license. Sound familiar, Mark? Yeah, it does. I think it's 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 a well-trodden sort of path. And and if you look at it, then the challenge is, and and obviously we obviously we're we're investigating um, the the challenge is where in the stack do you sit and how much um, of the stack do you take and um, what's your relationship with your reinsurers. I'll tell you an apocryphal no-name story actually on that basis re relating directly to this, which is um, we were speaking to the head of reinsurance at um, a well-known US-listed insure tech in some or other segment. And um, they he identified this new moat, which is basically, I won't use our language, I'll just moderate that a bit, but really rubbish underwriting. And the thesis is they've stuffed it up so badly that the reinsurers have pulled up the bridge and no one can follow them into the market. So, you know, I think the complexities of, of running a risk capital are perilous in many ways. Um, I think the temptation, uh, if you want back, look, look capacity is, is, is hard. Capacity is hard. Uh, in, in commercial motors, it's extremely hard. We, we you know, I think we got quite good at, at figuring this out and, and we will be making some announcements shortly in that regard. Um, and then for us on the commercial side of things, you know, uh, where we're setting up our own risk carrying entity, again, because our customers generally prefer rated paper, even having a mix of rated and unrated in, in the fronting stack is, is very difficult for us. So our path is more on the reinsurance side or somewhere, um, you know, further back in, in, in quota share, which is quite interesting in and of itself, because then you have access to alternative pools of capital and it all gets really interesting. And then with the data that we have, actually, because the reinsurers are so shielded from the perils that they are ultimately responsible for, we think we've got a very interesting proposition there. If you take some of the other sort of um, well-known UK uh, motor insurtechs that will set up Gibraltar carriers, 
um, and are now mostly writing on their own paper um, because they're not well exercised in underwriting, are really not having um, the underwriting discipline isn't there and um, the uh, underwriting performance is generally not great. I think that there's some going to be some interesting blow-ups that'll happen. I think it's very tempting, but it's also super difficult and we are very, very wary of it. It's a really interesting point. And I think the two things you've highlighted for me are one, it's a path well trodden, therefore they can learn and see what others have done. But equally, their desire to do it by tw the, by the end of 2021, given there's about 70 days left in this year, maybe a tall order. Net, net, there's more customer choice, so it's good for everyone. If I can just say one comment on that, if you don't mind, which is that to me, it's not really a buy, it's not kind of incumbents versus startups, right? There's this huge gray area where you've got what nominally look like, yeah, they are licensed carriers or whatever, but just, um, you know, look behind the scenes. And there is very traditional capital in the form of reinsurance, like Mark said, with quota shares and other things. And even in some cases, a lot, a lot of help underwriting, which is not a bad thing, exactly. And other investors who've been in the insurance industry um, forever. So I think that there are new ways of kind of putting your family together, as it were. But I think that the idea that we had initially that it's going to be completely new standalone companies versus the industry that's been there for hundreds of years um, is not true. And interestingly enough, in the fintech space, you know, you've seen a lot of companies like Cabbage or whatever, right, which are actually now kind of partnering with, with some of the more traditional traditional companies so it's it's very debatable whether you're you know like in i mean lemonade and next insurance whatever are not divorced from the traditional industry in in any way at all couldn't agree more and both many of the insurtechs are invested in by some of the tra tra traditional cvcs or otherwise um, but I'm also seeing many of the insurtechs being the new distribution arm for some of the legacy or, or incumbent products. So I think what I love about insurance most is the collaboration coming together rather than fighting all the time. So that we're all out there to fight for customers' attention and what's not. But I do think the collaboration here is stronger than, than any other industry. I'll, I'll wrap this one up. Good news for all and congrats again. Get safe. Benjamin, over to you. So uh, the last story we've got a bit of time to cover is uh, from the UK. And this is a, the insurance scheme that's been designed to cover live events has been hit by concern over conflicts of interest. This has been reported in the Financial Times. So brokers and event organisers have criticised a delayed uh, UK government-backed £750 million insurance scheme that's designed to carry the UK's events industry through the pandemic. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, said at the start of August that the scheme would help support live events threatened by any further lockdowns or um, COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, it was meant to be in place from September to help organisers plan for a busy reopening schedule of live events from corporate conferences and award dinners to music and comedy gigs. But multiple market participants have said they've yet to see the final policy wording and the lack of progress has left event organisers unsure whether they can secure insurance coverage at all. And worse, a number of insurance brokers, which are obviously used by organisers to find cover, have also expressed dismay that the scheme has been handed to one of their biggest rivals to administer. Um, because the government's framework document shows it's been it's contracted Oliver Wyman, the management consulting arm of Marsh and McLennan, as the administrator. So it sort of rings a little bit like some of the sort of accounting firms, you know, involved in a lot of things as such big professional services business, is that it gets a bit tricky. So I guess the story here is, you know, do we get to the point where the risk is so substantial, the risks are so uncertain that there are things that just 
can't be covered, that the industry can't pull coverage together. Nigel, I don't know if you've had time to look, to look at this story. Is it, you know, it seems like a little bit too little, too late. Is this, is it just too hard to cover these events? I, I sit here with three different hats on. One is an end consumer that can't wait to get back to the theatre and to gigs and events. I think I've had Elton John tickets booked for the last 20 years. I'm kidding. It's about four years. We were joking, my wife and I, that said my son was about eight when we first booked them. And by the time we get to actually see him, he'll be about 15. So he will be coming with us rather than, than anyone else. So I'm a, as a consumer, I can't wait for these things to take place again. But we do so in the backdrop of, you know, significant rising cases in the UK again, with the NHS chief exec coming out and saying, we've got to put masks back on and everything, and everything else. So we can't forget that this event, this pandemic is very much here and now and still amongst us. And insurance is there to cover unknown events. This is very much a known event. And one of the reasons I think that this has struggled quite a bit is exactly that point. We're, we're trying to put a insurance policy or cover in place for something that we know has a very high propensity to happen. If I said to Mark, hey, insure this fleet, and by the way, they've never had a driving lesson and they can't drive, Mark's algorithms and Mark's common sense would drop in and go, uh, no, very, very quickly. I just refer them to my um, autonomous vehicle partners and say you don't need drivers. That's <laughs> a problem. We'll, we'll give it a few years and we might get auto-chewing doing some of these folks. <laughs> exactly. But I think, look, this it's almost too known. So what we're actually looking for is maybe less of an insurance policy and more of a what scheme can we put in place to make sure people can get back to work and we can start to do these events safely whilst balancing them all out? And I think it's a really tough call to make. And I don't worry, you know, my former shop of Deloitte, I don't worry one iota about the Oliver Wyman Marsh link at all. I think that's just trying to find unnecessary links, to be fair. I mean, Oliver Wyman, Deloitte and all the other folks out there, in my mind, hugely well qualified to try and bring these things together in shape and, and everything else. So I think that's just trying to create a story from, from nothing in that particular point. I think also for me, when you when you were describing this, I, I agree with you, Nigel. I wouldn't be worried about that perceived conflict of interest. That's just trying to bitch about a competitor, not even a real but. Um, I think the government kind of has a conflict of interest because they're trying to put this thing in place um, and then they're the ones who decide if there are lockdowns and stuff, right? And it seems to me like, um, you know, a way to say, oh, well, you know, it won't it won't be that bad if we have to decide something. But I think there's a problem there and it's trying to, you know, we're all concerned about the amount of money that governments have been giving to people um, during COVID, but it seems like they're trying to sort of get away from that. But again, I think it's too late in it's too late in the progress of of COVID, right? Honestly, to me, it seems like this should be some sort of government scheme, quite honestly. Yeah. It 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 rings sort of slightly to me in terms of the stuff that we're seeing with some of the large transportation network companies where we're doing some uh, interesting work to try and shift those uninsurable pieces that they carry on their balance sheet. You know, um and because they're uninsurable um, if you look at the uh, at, at Lyft and Uber's filings, they're each carrying in the region of a billion on their balance sheet, which is basically the the risk that they're covering. And uh, because it's so known, it is going to happen. People are going to crash. And, and I think it, what Nigel you were saying earlier um, as well resonates very much with that. But who who is that um, backstop of last resort? I guess is the question. In this instance, it's certainly not the entertainment industry. They've got 
no money left to put into it, right? And, and it's true for so many industries. These, unfortunately, were towards the end of the list. If you look at the total cost of COVID to the UK government at the moment, it's roughly, what, £370 billion. It's a huge amount of money that at some point we're going to have to pay back. And you prioritise schools and, uh, and hospitals and everything else first and foremost. Lots of these things feel like they're at the, the end of the list. But then, you, as you say, you compare it to uh, pool reef for people that are living in flood zones. You compare it to what we've got coming up around cyber and how we're going to cover the cyber capacity gap as an industry going forward. So there's lots of these things that will be out there. Maybe you do end up with pool re, cyber re, pandemic re, that doesn't just cover um, live events, but has a much broader scope to make sure that in the event of a next pandemic, and these are supposed to be one in 100 or one in 200 or one in 500 type events. But if you look at natural catastrophe like wildfire or whatever, whatever, they were also supposed to be one in 250 or whatever else. And now they seem to be one every year. The world is literally, if you look at climate change and COP26 coming up, the world is, you know, from burning through to many other things, they're happening every single day. And the insurance industry alone can't be left to hold the baby. When you look at the Road Traffic Act scheme in, in the UK, I mean, that was put in place a while back and you can use that as a parallel. It blew up. You know, that's the bottom line. It blew up. Um, it, everything it was drained um, and it blew up too many claims. So you know, whatever you put in place now is going to blow up if the claims exceeds whatever the capability or the capacity is. No, so I absolutely agree with that. And the other thing is that, you know, with natural catastrophes, the government is not going around making volcanoes happen or like setting, no, fire, exactly. setting fire to things, right? <laughs> the problem here, I think, is you've got the you've got the sort of you've got the actual trigger potentially of the pandemic, how many cases or whatever. I mean, maybe they need to go to some kind of parametric, but then there's a big issue about how accurate the numbers are because as I say I'd be concerned about underwriting anything which is based on and bear in mind a lot of the government are my friends from university right but based on you know whether a few folks at checkers or whatever decide to put in more restrictions or do, or do a lockdown or, or or whatever so and that's you may find you know I'm sure they wouldn't do a lockdown in Texas for the same amount of cases that maybe they would in in, in London or, or or in Germany or whatever right so um I do think that aspect is pretty difficult for the for the industry but but there may be some sort of offshoots that that could be used yeah as a kind of backstop to some kind of pooling scheme Okay, so yeah, I, I think you're right, Susan. There are some events where it's so risky, um, the, the risk is so obvious and so present that the government almost ends up having to be the backstop. All the events just have to be cancelled and it's, it's really unfortunate. Hopefully, Nigel, you'll get to see Elton John at some point, but it may not be soon. I can't wait. I, he's, I've been a long-standing fan of Elton John and I'm now looking forward to taking both the kids to see it, actually. So every silver cloud has a lining. We're going to move on with the show. And as we come to the end of it, a few stories we didn't have too much time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. Benjamin, would you like to start? Yes. So our first one is that Barcelona-based insurtech startup WeCover has closed a 2.3 million euro investment round to expand internationally. Uh, so WeCover is a Spanish insurance startup that specialises in embedded insurance. It's just closed this, this round led by Norta Capital. 
The business was only founded in 2019. Uh, it's created what it calls a plug-and-play insurance solution that lets companies embed customized insurance products seamlessly, always a bit wary of that word, uh, into their sales processes, both online and offline. It's currently offering a wide variety of insurance products from mobility, retail, payment protection to health and pet insurance. And its mission is to try and enable every company to offer insurance products seamlessly um, bundled with the, the products that they sell. So this is a super interesting story. Um, you know, we've seen a, a number of sort of embedded insurance and insurance as a service startups springing up over the over the last few years. There have been a couple of more established European businesses that have been moved into it. I'm not surprised to see the excitement here. Yeah, it's, it's a relatively small round. I think we're going to see a lot more businesses um, like this coming into the market. So, you know, well done to WeCover. I look forward to seeing them then growing and succeeding. And I think we're going to see a lot more like this coming. Fantastic. My one to add here is Progressive Rockers, back to our previous story, Progressive Rockers launched DIY COVID insurance scheme to underwrite tour. This from Meridian, the British progressive rock band, has asked fans to underwrite the £150,000 cost of insuring a UK tour as musicians are forced to find alternative ways to counter the risk of catching COVID-19. So right back to our previous story and about how we're going to cope with this. The band said it had raised more than half of the target within a day asking its support base to cover the cost of cancelling the tour that kicks off in Hull next month. The money which will be held in escrow in a PayPal account will be returned to the fans if the tour completes as planned. Ian Mosley, Marillion's drummer, told the Financial Times that it was a sad situation that the band was not able to rely on long-standing insurance partners, which had forced many artists to postpone shows again due to the risk of cancellation. And again, reading the article and seeing the news on this, you saw, or we'll have all seen, uh, Phil Collins cancel his three-day tour because of um, COVID as well. So look, this is almost self-insurance or crowdsourcing insurance for folks that want to go and see the band and get back to some level of normality. And a smart way to do it. Why not? If you're prepared to sp spread the risk, not the virus, hopefully, but spread the risk amongst your fan base to get out there again and, and cover the cost of doing these things, maybe it's a path back to some level of normality soon. And it's, as I said earlier, it's, it's, it's still here. It's still prevalent. Interesting times ahead. Let's see where that one goes. And finally, what we've all been waiting for. Aviva reveals its quirkiest insurance claims in its 325-year history. This from Yahoo Finance. An elephant squeezed into a van. A publican who hurt his leg while ejecting a drunken customer and a husband who accidentally cooked his wife's jewellery are among the most unusual claims that Aviva has ever dealt with. Aviva has trawled through its archives to take a look at claims dating back centuries as it approaches its 325th anniversary on November 12th, 2021. Some of the quirkiest claims include a vicar who was awarded £120 after falling while playing leapfrog in 1875. They've not met my kids, clearly. A man who injured his arm when his finger was caught in a woman's corset in 1888 as he was trying to save her from drowning. And please add on that last piece. And in another case, a London hotel keeper was awarded £25.10 in 1878 after being hit in the eye with a cork after opening a bottle of champagne. Clearly not one for the Instagram generation. Where do we even start with this? Mark, you said you had some funny claims to share as well. What's your first one you want to share? And then I'll hand straight to Susan. It's less about claims and more an interesting story that we heard from one of our insurance partners who was complaining about uh, telematics and, and why it doesn't work. 
and um, they'd gone through a process with telematics uh, uh, with an, with another telematics offering and uh, gone through all the risk management stuff and worked really hard at reducing harsh braking with one particular driver who had a super high incidence of harsh braking. And um, they thought their program, intervention program was working unbelievably well. This is a taxi driver in New York, Medallion. And uh, so when, when they, after a week, almost disappeared and they got hold of the driver and said, look, we, we want to learn lessons. What happened here? And um, the driver said, um, yeah, I just stopped braking for orange lights. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think the claims bit comes after that piece. Oh, my. Oh, my. Susan, what have you got to add to our quirky claims? Well, funnily enough, earlier on when we were talking about harsh braking, I was like, it's better to do harsh braking than hit things. But anyway, well, what I was thinking about when you were um, reading that story is um, in the US, there's been a series of adverts for farmers um, insurance, which, as you know, is um, associated with this, with the Zurich group. And it is like, uh, allegedly, at least real life kind of like bizarre claims. And it's like a, a moose, as in the, the animal, you know, um, put its head through the front of an RV. And then and there's some other ones, which now, of course, you're asking me, I can't remember. But it's really hilarious that the adverts are very entertaining. Usually adverts in the US are a bit boring compared to in the UK. But these ones are pretty good. So kind of making a virtue out of quirky claims, I, I think, is you know definitely the way forward in making insurance more interesting interesting to people. I, I'm with you 100%. What about you, Benjamin? I was actually thinking the same thing. There's uh, there have been a couple of um, ones on TV in the UK. I think it's Aviva that's had them in this ads. There was one where a woman crashed into a pet shop and, of course, there were you know animals all over the road. And then the other one was this man who reported, he rang 999 and reported that he'd just seen a man in armour running across the road followed by a horse. And it was some reenactor, <laughs> you know, some medieval reenactor who'd lost his horse on the road <laughs> and was chasing after it in a suit of metal armour. So those are couple of my favourite. I, uh, I I love this space. I think year after year, we've had some funny stories about the most unusual claims of that year. Uh, I won't go into them now, but they do, they do, they are a highlight for me each and every year. One thing I love about this is actually the age of the company, 325 years is a massive milestone. Um, the first policy was taken out on January 15th, 1697. And the first claim was paid on the 11th of May, 1697, when houses in St. Stephen's Alley, Westminster were damnified by fire. So a wonderful story. And I think a, a lovely way to end the show for future insurtechs that are looking to be here in hundreds of years time. So with that, that wraps up the new show for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Susie, can I start with you? Gosh, okay. Um, so um, obviously, as far as what IFC does, um, we have our website, um, which is ifc.org. Um, people often get that one wrong. And um, I am quite a bit on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Mark? We've been pretty dark, actually. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I'm very open to, to chatting to people. And then our website is, is www.humn.ai. That's human with reduced vowels. You and Aberdeen Asset Management are all trying this new vowel list technology. Oh, we, they, they went extra. They, they went extra. They took two out. We just removed oh, one. Oh, dear. What can I say? Benjamin. I'm on LinkedIn and 11fs.com. And for me, you'll find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh no vowels removed thanks to all of our guests today thank you for listening if you like what you've heard subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review it helps us to make it better and helps others find the show as always if you want to join the conversation find us on social media just search for 11 colon fs or insure tech insider 
Find us on Twitter at Instec Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. See you soon.